Fright Night Minute, a daily podcast where we discuss the original 1985 horror movie, Fright Night, one minute at a time. I'm Robin. I'm Leonard. And we want to welcome to the podcast actor and composer, Lita Velasco. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on as well. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) That makes one of us. Yeah, we reached out to you because, uh, I mean, uh, (laughs) ignore Len. Uh, uh, We uh, saw you on uh, Dread Central uh, getting uh, completely made up as Jerry Dandridge, and we're like, oh, this is a Fright Night fan. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. And, of course, uh, you composed a score to You're So Cool, Brewster, the story of Fright night i think that's the title yes it is we've watched it but just uh the title's long so it's hard to remember i haven't watched it's a mouthful (laughs) uh but we are here to talk uh yeah we're going to be getting into all that stuff but we're we're here today to talk about minute 71 of fright night it begins with peter's tearful resignation and ends with a virgin sleeping in front of a roaring fire you need for a great horror movie. <laughs> uh, I guess it's, uh, this is your first time on. Uh, I, I should ask ask you what your story is with Friday Night. Like, when did you get into it? I mean, were, were you were you like five, looking, uh, you know, through the, the the banister of your stairwell at a TV you shouldn't have been watching? Or uh, how did you come into Friday Night? So actually, it's interesting because Fright Night is the first horror film that I ever saw in a movie theater. And yes, uh, because when I was a kid, I was always very fascinated with horror. And obviously, that's something that continued through my whole life. I, I grew up watching. I grew up in the Chicagoland area. And we were the people who had Son of Svengoolie as our local um, horror movie host. Right. And every Saturday, he would show a horror movie. And they were generally the classics, the black and whites from the you know 30s, 40s, and 50s. Oh, wow. And so those were, you know, my family kind of felt, well, those are fairly tame. And, you know, they won't scare him too badly. But one um, night when my parents went out for dinner and, you know, a date night or whatever, the babysitter, it was 1981, she made the mistake of letting my sister myself watch the television world premiere of Halloween. Oh. And yes, ever since then, I was completely hooked, even though I was also horrified. So for many years, I had a love-hate relationship with horror, and I wanted to see more, but I was also terrified. So yeah, that's a, that's, my parents... That's a rough situation to watch Halloween for the first time at, in, in a house. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, and also near Chicago, which is in Illinois, oh, yeah. which is right. where Halloween takes place. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was thoroughly convinced that night I was going to die. Especially because uh, when they show the empty grass, the screen faded to black and then it faded in on a commercial for Halloween 2, which was coming out that Friday. So I was like, oh, my God, he's still alive. (laughs) I'm going to die tonight. So it began this lifelong just adoration of and repulsion by horror, which obviously as I got older, it just became pure love. And my parents saw reviews for Fright Night. My dad is a really big horror movie and vampire fan. So he said, you know what? I think this will be safe. So they took us. I was... 
I think, 11 years old at the time. So I was just completely, I fell in love with the film. Yeah. Like, I just, I loved everything about it at that age. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I I don't think I came to it till I might have saw it uh, on HBO or something, and probably when I shouldn't have been watching it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to watch him, though. <laughs> but uh, Len always says that he saw American Werewolf in London when you were, like, what, three or something? Three. My mother was the horror fan in our household, and uh, I grew up with stacks of Stephen King novels. And, and so similar. I fell in love with it very young, and the first movie I ever saw was... Uh, American American Werewolf in London. My my mom couldn't find a babysitter, so she figured, ah, can't be so bad. Uh, John Landis, right? <laughs> and then, yeah, right. And then uh, t- yeah, took me to see that, and um, I still have some of those moments of that film seared in my brain. But it did the same thing. It made me fall in love with that stuff when I was real young, and it never went away. My office looks like Halloween year-round. Not the film, but the season. Uh-huh. And uh, it I don't know, man. I'm with you. I, I, it started as curiosity and fear, sort of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, tantalizing. And now, now, um, as I've gotten older, I think I've fallen in love with the more whimsical humor yeah. side of of scary, you know, like the horomity genre. Mm-hmm. Fright Night is is the one. My mother used to say, "You're so cool, Brewster," to me all the time. I just, it, it, it's uh, that's the one. That's why I'm on this podcast, <laughs> I guess. But I wanted to ask because as you were saying that. Out of all the horror movies I'm sure you've seen, and out of the ones that we've all seen, what is the scariest? What's the scariest one? What's the one that disturbed you the most? Well, I mean, I think that's a good question in terms of it depends on the era. Like, you know what I mean? Like, some of them don't scare me as much now. Some of them absolutely terrified the crap out of me when I first saw them. But it was because of the age or the era or the setting. Right. Um, I think still the scariest film I think I've ever seen is Halloween. And it's just because it was so (laughs) it just left such an impression and such a mark at an age where, like, you're really those are really formative, important years in your development just as a human being from what I know, what little I know of psychology. But at that age, it's like you're becoming aware of self and, you know, things like I am, it's not we, you know, so you start to grasp concepts of life and death a little bit, not like you do when you're an adult, but you start to understand what death means. And I think seeing it at that age, it really just it just chilled me to the bone. I think this. I think the runner-ups would probably be Phantasm and A Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. because, again, I saw them young, and they just. I couldn't really grasp what was going on in those two films. So that's kind of what made them so terrifying is because like you watched, I watched it and I thought, I think I have a handle on what's happening. And then everything kind of flips and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I, I don't understand this and I'm terrified. And that's, I think something that makes those films so effective. I, I generally tend to prefer movies that are, uh, mortal danger and something tangible and physical, as opposed to the supernatural. I'm not a I'm not a big haunting ghost movies kind of sure. guy. Yeah, yeah. And that's Fright Night, something like that too. It's it's you know we all look out the window and wonder about the person living next door. Or, you know, in an apartment complex, you wonder about the person living across the hall. They seem normal, but you know when you live in a day and age that we, you know, we all grew up in with Jeffrey Dahmers and, you know, people like that. You just, you never know about people. So I think 
that's part of the brilliance of Fright Night. It taps into that kind of universal fear of the unknown of the person next door, you know, while, while also being such a great homage to things like Rear Window and Dracula. And that's part of its magic. It taps into these subconscious themes that have been resonating with human beings, especially human beings in America for so long that it works really well on those levels. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. Uh, what did you think of the remake when it came out? Did you ever see it? I did. I, I mean, I went into it wanting to really enjoy it, and I think I enjoyed a lot of what they did. But I had, a, like, I think most fans, I think I had real problems with some of the choices that they made. Of course, like seeing Chris Sarandon is, you know, the the trucker that gets, <laughs> you know, his near the end of the film. I thought that. I mean, I was like, oh my god, Chris Sarandon! Like, I got super excited, and I love the lead uh, performer. His name is escaping me at the moment. Yelchin, yeah. that's it, yeah. And of course, you know, such a shame what happened to him. Yeah. I mean, I think the casting was great. It's just I wasn't a huge fan of some of the story choices. Yeah, we're with you. We we shit on that often. <laughs> I They've gone the way of the dodo now. Everybody does digital media, media, but I have a pretty extensive DVD collection. And when I... It's sort of like I had to have the, that movie just <laughs> yeah. just to live, you know, on the shelf. Yeah, and it bugs me every time I walk by and I see it's on the shelf. I, it's, uh, it's just like, freaking, they got McLovin? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we've talked about it before, but the biggest, the thing that pisses me off the most is the sort of David Tennant, Chris Angel oh, yeah, version yeah. of Peter Vincent. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. makes sense in a modern era, but it, it I don't know, wasn't, I like the old vampire yeah. hunter. You know, yeah, like and that that's, that's one of the things that bothered me the most. I just thought, I was like, why does it have to be this guy? Like, there's a million choices you could have made. And I understand, like you said, it is timely to the era that they made the film in. But it was just so, something about it was just so off-putting from the beginning. And I couldn't really put my finger on it until, like, midway through exposure to the character in the film. I was like, he's just a dirtball. Yeah. Like, I just don't like him because he's just a total scumbag. Yeah. And that's something that, it's like... Like in the Halloween remakes, uh, you know, the Rob Zombie films, I own those too because I'm a completist. Sure. But like they also, when I walk past them, I have to take a Tums because I get a little <laughs> nauseous. And like there's just something so off-putting about seeing Sam Loomis being such a complete scumbag. Yeah. Like I understand they wanted to make it different, but it's like that's the soul of your quote-unquote franchise. Why are you turning the soul of your franchise into a douchebag? Because that's also part of the magic of the first two Fright Night films. Peter Vincent is just, you can't help but love the guy, yeah. foibles and all. He is so endearing and charming and sweet and lovable and just almost cuddly that to flip him and make him this kind of greaseball, you know, douchebag, you're like, I hate this movie now. Yeah. Especially, what a waste of David Tennant, such an amazing actor. Yeah. They could have done a million things with his character and instead they're like, we'll just make him someone everybody hates. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, I didn't get it either. That was the biggest that was the biggest uh disappointment of the movie for me too and you know when i heard it's being remade it, it's always been one of my favorites so that uh, it you know it, it was definitely fighting a losing battle to begin yeah with. i went in with a bad <laughs> attitude and it didn't change when i left exactly <laughs> the with these remakes though it's just like you've got to constantly remind yourself we still have the original it didn't go anywhere it's right you know, right it's just sad when you know you know especially when it, the remake is just the name again like fright night or you know, Ghostbusters. I don't want to trigger anybody listening to the <laughs> podcast, but it's like, 
why don't you just call it something different? You know, yeah. just call it like you know, I don't know, like frightening because it's frightening a perfect story, franchise. You know, yeah, that's exactly why it's money. Yeah. Uh, these yeah. soft reboots are going to keep happening, and and you know, yeah. uh, I, it's like I, I say, I have, I have a I have a fright night podcast. Although the the David Tennant, the Chris, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the eighties one. Oh, I haven't seen that. <laughs> well, that's and that's the that's the thing. I mean, you're absolutely spot on correct when you say like the originals aren't going anywhere. We still own them. And yes, you're you're very right about that. But the thing that bothers me is I showed the original Nightmare on Elm Street to my niece when she was, I think, about 12. Like I I waited as long as I could. I was like chomping at the bit. I would ask <laughs> my sister. I'd be like, can I show it to her now? And my, my sister's like, no, wait one more year. Wait one more year. So when I finally showed her, she was like, oh, my God this film was magic and like I would pause it and talk to her about things and like tell her about the behind the scenes and all this. And like, so she went to school, um, two days later and she told her friend, she's like, Oh my God, I saw, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street finally. And Oh, it was so good. And they're like, Oh, was it, did you like that part where like, she's in the pharmacy and micro and they, she's like, wait, what part? And they're like, wait, what film did you see? And she's like the 1984. And then, and her friends would be like, Oh, there's a 1984 one. That's, that's what I hate about reboots. Agreed. It's like the new generation either doesn't know they exist or they just don't give a shit. <laughs> Pardon my French. Yeah. But that part, that, that just bothers me. It's like, come on, man. Respect the originals. <sighs> Well, anyway, we, we definitely, uh, <laughs> man, I'm just going to cool off. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's cleanse our palates by talking about yeah. this minute of uh, Fright Night. And yes, we're we're in the scene here with the great uh, Peter Vincent, the great Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent. And uh, Peter, uh, as this minute is going on, he's just admitted to Charlie that he lied to him earlier. Um, but Charlie still wants his help. He's your Peter Vincent, the great vampire killer like he has no one else to turn to but this fictional character in his mind and I, I mean, it's funny it's like he's almost like charlie does a lot of yelling and it's like he's really convinced that maybe just maybe yelling his character's name at, at uh peter is going to somehow give him the courage to join him <laughs> yes and that's i think i was making notes earlier when i was watching the scenes and i think that's something that's so wonderful and charming about that scene is there's not only a desperation of both of the characters, but there's a desperation between these characters that's it's almost heartbreaking. Like the and and the humanity in that scene, like you don't see that a lot in horror films. And I think that's another thing that separates this film from a lot of other horror films. Cause like a lot of horror films, I think you guys mentioned this on a previous podcast where you said like a lot of the characters are just kind of cannon fodder and they're unlikable. This film like goes to great lengths to imbue every single character in the film with the humanity and a pathos and like this almost desperation. Every single character has a moment of desperation. And in this scene, it's so tangible that it's like it makes the return later, which obviously you guys will talk about later, but it makes that such a moment of triumph because you've wa you watch this proud actor who's just barely holding it together, just completely crumble emotionally before this kid that he, that he knows holds him up as this hero. And to do something like that, if you like think about doing that in real life, think of how painful that would be to like admit that to someone that's basically still a stranger. Yeah. It's it's such a brilliant 
thing that Tom Holland wrote into the script and when he directed the film really made sure these guys were conveying that to the audience that you can't help but absolutely root for both of these guys. For sure. Uh, I I was thinking uh, about uh, just in a lot of movies, like Amy is taken and all of a sudden we get the montage of them making weapons. <laughs> you know, it's just... Yeah, exactly. So I like the fact that, you know, uh, Peter is just scared to death. You know, he saw something... I mean, he's seen many things happen in front of him on a set. Yeah. <laughs> but what That's he real. saw with Evil Ed uh, scared the bejesus out of him. And of yep. course, not, you know, not seeing Jerry in his uh, cigarette case mirror. So... Yep. Uh, but, but you're right about Tom giving these characters humanity even Jerry mm-hmm. has it and you don't always oh, get that from a villain and that's what makes him to me one of the best on screen villains oh, yeah. ever because yep. he does have yep. many moments of uh, and we're going to see one coming up where he yeah he's <laughs> he, he's and that's the perfect way to do it instead of making a whole trilogy about how Darth Vader was in love it's <laughs> it's way better because I'll say it over and over again in life and probably on this podcast the best way to kill a villain is with a backstory mm-hmm. so yep. it's better to give hints of it and that's what we get from Jerry it's so funny though because we've spent a lot of this podcast trying to figure out Jerry's backstory uh, so yeah but that's speculation but it's, yeah, and it's fun, fun if I saw it on screen I'd be irritated yeah <laughs> you know that's what makes it fun is that it's hinted at rather than you know spelled out for us mm-hmm. yep exactly uh, so yeah yeah Peter gets you know really uh, uh, frustrated with uh, Charlie's delusions of his grandeur uh, by, by just saying like you know that's a character in a movie he's kind of slams his head down hands down and then he just gets like quiet and he says you know, like that's not even my real name um, mm-hmm. and I, I I've told Len this before but uh, I have the uh, novelization and uh, Peter's real name is revealed in there and I don't know if it's from an earlier draft of the script mm-hmm. but it, mm-hmm. but just so you know his real name is Herbert McCoolahy <laughs> wow well, that's that awesome <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> no wonder why he changed the damn thing right. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's it's he's he's really sorry. He's completely powerless, and it, and it upsets him that uh, he he feels this way. Uh, oh yeah, so. pride. He has such pride. How could he not be upset? You know. And we try to figure out what who those what was what's going on in that frame there between them. I, I we were thinking it's Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, but like we're not sure what that movie might be. Do you have any insight to that at all? I just figure I ask out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! No, I never. I don't. I don't think I even ever thought of it on that level. Yeah. But of course, now that you now that you said it, the next time I watch it, I'm gonna have to just sit there and introspect and wonder and start flipping through my catalog of uh, DVDs. Oh, and the, and the other thing is the phone sitting between them. You're gonna see that phone in everybody's house, just in different <laughs> colors. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, so yeah, yeah. The, he just kind of you know says he's sorry, and uh, and yeah. Here's where uh, uh, Brad Fidel's uh, score gets a little. Maudlin. I felt like it was a. It's a little, little treacly, little after school, especially. But um, it is a tender moment. So you know, I can't always mm-hmm. be like dark. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> yes. But um, 
so yeah, Charlie gets to his knees and takes the hand of you know what we've been calling his his father figure. You know, it, it, at first it seemed like you know Jerry was like this like abusive stepfather. Now Peter is this uh, you know wonderful uh, old man, new boyfriend of her mom's. You know, <laughs> that, that kind of role in, in, in uh, uh, Charlie's life. You know, uh, and I just love how he just kind of takes takes his hand and he he just goes for broke for like one last time, saying you know if you don't help. Amy is going to die, and probably me as well. Just yep. really putting the pressure on him. But uh, yeah, but Peter is just practically I'm s- in tears here. Yeah, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if they meant it as a as a joke. I can't imagine. But uh, Starkist was pretty big at this time. And mm-hmm. just the fact that he's saying, sorry, Charlie, uh, brings back uh, <laughs> <laughs> memories. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Again, you've colored this scene for me in a way that I... <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're, we're sitting here staring at a paused scene of the, mm-hmm. those two um, with each other. And I feel like Tom missed a little opportunity here. They're both framed with a very dark window behind them. It would have been kind of neat to see just in the shadows pass by like a, like an Ed floating by. You know? <laughs> floating in the window. Oh, yeah. yeah. Something's yeah. looking like ominous. Like just for a second. Yeah. Or right. something yeah. else. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and and yeah, like they leave the scene in this, and and yeah, I just wrote down like, oh man, he, you know, Peter's Peter's got tears, and and you know, now I have tears, you know, just because <laughs> I feel so bad for him, you know, he really mm-hmm. wants to, but he just can't. He's completely weakened. He's he can't even barely even get out of that chair. He's the cowardly lion. And he can't even. And he can't even look at, at Charlie. That's the thing that's so just like yeah. crippling about it. Just for those last few seconds, he's just looking down and he's kind of fiddling with the arm of the chair because he's so nervous and he's so ashamed. Yeah. It's such a wonderful moment for that actor. It's a testament to how good he was, how he could like it's just tears, a, a breaking voice and fiddling. And he just barely like kind of, you know, shifts his posture in the chair a little. And it tells you so many things about what he's going through internally. And it's funny, they actually, you know, I have a copy of the script, and I, I think it's like an earlier version, because there's a lot of stuff that's uh, cut out and, you know, uh, uh, maybe even redone while they were shooting, or just edited out. But uh, the script has Charlie, uh, the, the scene doesn't cut away, uh, Charlie waits a moment, and then he kind of gets up and starts walking out the door, and he goes, yeah, me too, and he walks out the oh, door. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, so it's even kind of like, <clears throat> ouch. <laughs> yeah, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about pouring salt in his wound. <laughs> you might as well just kick the poor old guy. Yep. <clears throat> but now we cut to uh, what you're definitely here for, the start of this. Uh, uh, we have a close-up of a hand putting a tape into a tape deck and closing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I pausing on the scene, I was like, wait, what kind of stereo is that? I'm looking for Sony. Vector research. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's real. Uh, I looked it up. It was a small company producing a line of integrated amplifiers and cassette tape decks uh, based in Chatsworth, California. They went out of business in the mid-late mid, 80s, but their uh, receivers were pretty high-end and, and oh, high okay. as a result. So mm. this, is a, this is a fancy stereo. And I've, honestly, as a kid, I always wanted like an amp and a tape deck with all the lights bouncing around as I played. Yeah. I never got one. <laughs> <laughs> too 
take this boombox. You're fine. <laughs> you wanted it to look more fancy and Star Trek and Star Warsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's funny. Uh, I mean, we do. We only hear the first couple of beats of it, so I, I think we'll save the uh, some score talk for uh, our next minute. But uh, yeah, Jerry has a copy of uh, Brad Fidel's score <laughs> on this tape. Yeah, <laughs> which is good. Who would have thought? Wow, how convenient. We go from just regular score to diegetic music, which is uh, which is cool. Exactly. And uh, uh, we pan over to Amy, uh, unconscious, unconscious in front of uh, a fireplace. And uh, yeah, is that a rug that she's on? You think, or just a blanket, maybe thrown on the floor? I don't know. I always thought it was just like like a really soft, nice blanket. Looks very comfy. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, very soft. <laughs> he spared no expense. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, oh man, did Jerry just throw his blanket on the floor? And I was like, wait a second, he doesn't have a bed. <laughs> Maybe he pulled this out of his casket and was just like, oh, this is my favorite wubby. I'm going to put this on the floor. Actually, you just made me think of a, a whole other scene. It's actually Billy's. He was in his he was in his room uh, playing Nintendo, and Jerry came in and took his blanket from him. <laughs> hey, man. Where are you going? What are you doing? Shut up. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> yes, boss. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it looks like Amy is in what seems to be, like, a classic Bride of Dracula bridal gown. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very gorgeous. Oh, so gorgeous. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and that's that's it for this minute. I don't know if you we missed anything that maybe you, you wrote a note down about or anything like that. No. That's about that's about it. I, like for me, like I said, the key was just the humanity of those of that scene. So good, so good. Yes, yes. Well, uh, let's wrap up uh, minute seventy one. Uh, Lito, do you want to let people know uh, where they could find you, where they could get a hold of you? If you are you hawking any merchandise, are you are you got some upcoming <laughs> gigs you want people to come to? Just remember this this uh, this podcast will probably be published more towards the end of twenty nineteen because uh, we haven't even <laughs> no no problem yet. No problem. Well, I, I will say there's a new edition of. Uh, I know Len, you said you hadn't seen the documentary yet. Yeah, there's yet. a new. There's a new edition of Fright Night that's coming out. I can't remember the studio that's releasing it, but it's a new Blu-ray edition. It's not going to be the Twilight Time, you know, limited to 2,000 copies or whatever Bolshoi Skandal that they pulled. This is going to be, you know, commercial release, unlimited, I think, printings, and it's going to have the uh, You're So Cool Brewster documentary on it. Um, so awesome. people should keep... Yeah, people should keep an eye out for that, especially if they're fans of this and they have not seen the documentary. I think you can see it on Shudder, too, but I know yeah. Shudder's kind of still making its way towards being a mainstream thing. If people want to check uh, more of my adventures out, they can find me on Instagram at LitoVelasco23. They can search me on Facebook. I have a public Facebook page. It's just um, my name is Hollywood Lito. They can search that, or they can just search Lito Velasco, and it should pop up. And then on Twitter, it is Hollywood Lito, and I don't really have any upcoming shenanigans other than Comic Con is next week. So yeah, cool. Oh gosh, yeah, we'll we'll obviously hear about the uh, the sequel to the uh, reboot of the reboot of Fright Night uh, <laughs> months ago. By the time this comes out uh, at Comic Con, so uh, looking forward to being angry about that. So, uh, <laughs> all right, uh, well, let's put a stake in this one. We'll f- please follow us on Twitter at Fright Night Men. Send your feedback to Fright Night Minute at gmail.com. and please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. 
And until next time, I'm Robin. I'm Charlie Brewster. (laughs) And I'm Lito. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Have a fright night, everybody. He's a vampire. A what? (laughs) You're so cool, Bruce.